Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the JAR. My name's Chris, and uh, we're so glad you chose to uh, hang out with us today. I'd like to uh, begin by simply asking this question uh, to you. Uh, how many of you have ever put a puzzle together before? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of hands going up. Okay, how many of you have ever put together a thousand-piece puzzle? Raise your hand. Okay, nerds. Okay, uh, <clears throat> Just joking, just joking. Hey, um, how many of you have ever put a 500-piece puzzle together? Anybody done that before? Okay, not quite as nerdy, but still a little bit. And uh, then this one I'm sure everyone can do. How many of you have ever put together one of the uh, little kids' meals at McDonald's? One of those, uh, yeah, exactly. Everybody's like, yeah, I've done that before. A Happy Meal. It uh, makes you happy after you eat it. And... Uh, so uh, that is puzzles, and uh, all of us know puzzles. We do puzzles. And uh, anyone know what the largest puzzle ever put together was? Anyone want to take a guess? Well, I know, so you don't have to guess. All right. So it took place in Vietnam, uh, and they did it in a gymnasium, and there were 552,000 232 pieces, okay? I think we have a picture of it right here. And uh, they put all this together. There were 1,600 people that put it together. It took them 17 hours. They broke them up into groups of 160 people each. And it was a picture of the lotus flower representing uh, knowledge. Well, I've always enjoyed puzzles and putting puzzles together. Um, I'm better at like the 50 range and lower, okay, uh, just to be honest. That's why I'm with my kids when they got puzzles like 24. I was a king of puzzles, you know. And uh, then if it goes up higher than that, I always have to bring my wife in, and she puts it together. And uh, so that's kind of the puzzle thing. And uh, I was just thinking about it, that your life and my life is like a puzzle. And there are different pieces to the puzzle that we're putting together. And sometimes... Uh, just like putting a puzzle together is hard, life is hard, and sometimes the pieces don't fit. Other times we're missing certain pieces. Other times when you're putting the pieces together, people look at you and go, you're not putting your life or that piece of the puzzle in the right place. You know, sometimes when I start thinking about my own life as a puzzle, I start thinking about many of the questions that I've had. Many of the times that I've had fears or I've had doubts, Sometimes the pieces of the puzzle just didn't fit. They didn't seem to work out. And there have been many times in my life uh, when I've been asking God certain questions about some of the pieces of the puzzle of faith. For example, was Jesus really born of a virgin? It was a question I had for many years because it seemed so ironic, like it goes against what seems so real. Did he do miracles? Was he really... One that resurrected from the dead. Is he the son of God, the second of the Trinity? I mean, that's a big concept. I mean, isn't it true that they could have maybe just read ahead all the stuff that was going on in the Old Testament, and then when they wrote it in the New, they just fulfilled everything. Maybe that happened. And then finally, the question that I want us to look at today is this one, and maybe it's a question that you've had as well. It'll come up on the side screen uh, why did folks decide Jesus was divine? In other words, why did they finally decide that he was God? And what difference does it make? Like, that's the question if you're going to follow someone. What difference is going to make to my particular life? 
And I'm telling you, folks, both people outside the church have these questions, but inside the church we have these questions as well. I wonder how many of you have ever asked one of those questions before. Maybe you're asking one of these questions this morning. Well, they're important questions to ask, and they're questions that I want us to kind of dive into today because they're important for us. And for some of you, this might be the teaching that you've been waiting for that will say, okay, historically and and theologically, like, what is Christianity about? What are the pieces of the puzzle that make it unique and different? And why does it matter? Like, why should I be a part of that? So for the rest of our time, uh, I need you to put on your thinking caps, okay? So you need to focus in. We're going to go through a lot of stuff. I may talk fast, so you have to stay up, but you can do it because you're smarter than the first celebration people, okay? Uh, Because you've had more sleep than them, okay? And so we're going to begin with some of the pieces uh, of the puzzle right now. And um, what I want to do is start from the very, very beginning. And uh, you might have remembered that there was a story at the very beginning in which God creates everything, and finally he creates his masterpiece, human beings. Uh, They're named Adam and Eve, and they have this amazing relationship, and everything is right and perfect. There's no hiding. There are no masks. There are no secrets, no shame. They're in paradise. They're in this garden, and God comes to them, and he says, hey, you can have everything in this garden that you want, but this one tree that's right here, I don't want you to eat any of the fruit from it. And, uh, you know, any toddler or any senior citizen, if you tell them, don't do this one thing, what are they going to do? They're going to do it. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They're like, hey... You think you're God, I want to be the God of my own life. And that's what human beings have been doing for thousands and thousands of years, trying to be their own God. And so Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. And it really is simply symbolic, not their fall, but the fall of all humanity. In fact, the Christian kind of theological word for that is your first fill-in. It's simply called the fall. As we're putting the pieces of the puzzle together, if you understand who Jesus uh, is as the Son of God, if you're like, hey, I might be open to it, you have to begin at the very beginning of how it all started, and it started with a fall that was represented with Adam and Eve. And from this first act of disobedience, what happened was everybody got messed up, and we got more messed up and more messed up in the story until finally... God comes to the serpent right after they have eaten the fruit, and he's like, hey, I need to set things right. And he goes to the serpent, which just simply represents the evil one, uh, Satan, and this is what God says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, who's he? Wondering minds want to know. Okay, you might want to circle that. He will crush your head, and you will strike His, you might want to underline that, His heel. So, at the very beginning, God immediately comes after the fall and He comes to the serpent that represents all evil forever. And this is what He says. He says, Your days are numbered, buddy. I don't know if He called him buddy. Let's do it different. Your your days are numbered. 
you snake. Okay? And uh, he goes, sin and death are going to be in the world for a little while, but he, this man is going to come, but he's not just the son of man, he's also the son of God. He's an offspring of Adam and Eve. You might actually say that he is the ultimate Adam. He is the new Adam. And there will be enmity. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's going to be a battle that's going on constantly, but he is going to crush your head. He's going to win eventually. The reign of death is going to end. Healing will come to creation, but you will strike his heel. We're going to give you one strike. He's going to be a wounded healer. He's going to heal people, but he's going to be wounded so that he can connect and resonate with human beings. I mean, even before the echoes of their sin go out into the world, God already comes and He says, I'm promising you I'm going to send somebody who's going to make all things right. Everything's going to be put back together. This is going to happen. The fall will not be the final fall. We're going to put it all together and God promises a Redeemer who's going to come and He's going to be present. Here's the second piece of the puzzle. Bringer of the kingdom of God. Part of the puzzle, if you want to say, hey, Jesus is the one, you have to realize that, oh, what's he bringing? Well, he's bringing the kingdom of God. And 700 years before Jesus was born as that little tiny baby, there was a prophet, a guy who spoke on uh, God's behalf, and he actually said these words. His name is Isaiah. He said, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring, what's it say? Good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who has said to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, someday everything is going to be put back together. Everything is going to be made right. God is going to reign. Someday there's going to be peace. No more violence, no more hurt, no more pain, no more racial division, no betrayal, no greed, no deceit. This is called the kingdom of God. And when this He comes to us, He is going to usher this in. It's going to be heaven on earth. What's up there is actually going to come down here. And that's what Isaiah predicted 700 years before Jesus was born. And then the people of the New Testament, they bring up this same kind of language. And they're like, well, this is consistent with Jesus' message. And the message wasn't, hey, all of you, play nice. Be nice, Jesus people. All of you in the balcony, you play nice too. Play nice with these people. Rather, what we're told is this. After John, that is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, he's put in prison. So if you've ever been in prison or you have a relative that's been put in prison, guess what? You're just like Jesus, okay? Uh, He was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee. That's where he was raised. Proclaiming the, what is it? What did we just read in Isaiah? What did he say? Good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the what? Good news. So it's like consistent. There is this sense of language that is very similar to what it was 700 years Before, and Jesus is claiming, as Isaiah predicted, that the reign of God was going to come. What all the prophets, what everybody has been waiting on is finally going to come. 
but you have to wait just a little longer. By the way, how's it going waiting for you guys? You like to wait? People have been coming up to me all the time. They're like, this series, man, it's so hard. We don't like to wait. But finally they wait. And they wait and they wait and they wait. And it's finally here. The good news is here. It's like now being fulfilled. Now, of course, everybody would have wondered at that time, why does Jesus say that? I mean, Rome is still in charge. Everything is a mess. What has changed? Only one thing has changed. Jesus is here. For some of you, you just need that one assurance in your own life this morning that Jesus is here. There's a word they gave him when he first came as a little baby called Emmanuel. We talk about this all the time during Christmas. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus actually came to be with you. To be with all of you. He's claiming to be the bringer of the kingdom of God. It was predicted in the fall that he was coming. 700 years before he actually came, it was there. I mean, Jesus is walking around and he is proclaiming the kingdom of God when he walked on earth, saying that now there will be justice, now there will be goodness, now there will be kindness. We will triumph, we will reign because I'm here. And it's in this season that we remember that he arrived in this tiny little baby, but he didn't stay a baby, but he grew up in his life and his word and his teachings It actually turned the world upside down to where today 2 billion people are claiming that they're following this guy because he was the bringer of the kingdom of God. And so the pieces of the puzzle are like coming together and they're starting to figure out, well, maybe, but it takes time. It took a lot of time. Here's another piece of the puzzle. Jesus proclaims he is the Messiah. Now, what's that word Messiah mean? Well, it actually means anointed one or promised one or the Savior one, the one who will save the world. One day Jesus does this amazing miracle and uh, the disciples are with him and this is what uh, takes place. Jesus comes to them and he says these words, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah! And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. What? Say, what? What do you mean? This is what we've been waiting on. And and I mean, I just don't get it. Like, why does Jesus say that? I mean, Peter had a tendency of putting his foot in his mouth all the time, just like I do, so I can relate to Peter. And finally, Peter gets it right. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Uh, you know, the thing they've been waiting for, just don't tell a single soul. And why? Because Jesus is like, well, people have a false understanding of who the Messiah is going to be. What you need to know is that Jesus was not the only one who ever claimed to be a Messiah. Before, there were many other people that claimed to be Messiahs. The problem was, the key piece of the Messiah is that you don't die. Because if you die and you're the Messiah, guess what? You're done. You have nothing left. And Jesus comes into this and He talks about the Messiah and He basically believes that every single person in Israel is wrong except Him 
when it comes to the Messiah. Now, if someone said that, I'm right, everyone else in the world is wrong, what would you call them? Don't say it out loud, okay? But you'd say they're arrogant. You would say that they are presumptuous. And this is what Jesus decides, is that we need to think differently, and I need to disrupt what people think about the Messiah. And he teaches them that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one who is the Messiah, is going to suffer many things. He must be rejected by the religious leaders. He must be dead, actually dead, for three days, and then rise again after the third day. And he spoke about this plainly. So when he starts talking about he's going to die and that's going to be it, um, Peter's like, whoa! Jesus, let me pull you aside. And Peter kind of rebukes him. Jesus, this isn't the way to go. Like, no one's going to follow a dead Messiah. No one wants to follow someone who's dead. And if you don't want us to tell everybody that you're going to be alive, you're going to... I don't get it. I just don't get it. Well, the reality is the world didn't get it. Sometimes the world still doesn't get it today. The reason that Peter rebukes him is because no one wants to follow a crucified Messiah. I mean, just think about it. By definition, if you're the Messiah and you die, you're no longer the Messiah. The one who they've been waiting on to overthrow their enemies in Rome and Rome would finally be crushed. And so, what is Rome's message? They take Jesus, they put Him on a cross, and they crucify Him there, because then they can say, look at Him there. He is not the Messiah. He's not the one. And so Jesus is like, hey, guys, 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 let's just buy a little time. Because I don't think you're going to believe what I need you to believe so that you can turn the world upside down. So we just need to wait. Do you mind waiting, guys? No, man. I don't want to wait. Let's do this thing now. Let's take Rome down. Let's do it, Jesus. Let's take over everything. No, we need to wait. Folks, Christianity is the only religion in the world that its leader claimed that he was God. That he wasn't just a good person. He wasn't a teacher. He actually was God. And Jesus proclaimed it, but he said, wait until it's time. Here's another piece of the puzzle. The Messiah will bring peace. The Messiah, the one that they're waiting on, will bring peace. Another prophet, a guy by the name of Zechariah, was a guy who 500 years before Jesus was ever born, said that the Messiah will bring peace. But the way that he kind of talked about this is very interesting. This is what uh, Zechariah said. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion is just a term for Israel, so this whole country. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, gentle and riding on a what? A donkey. On a colt, the fowl of a donkey. He will proclaim what? Peace to the nations. 500 years before, this is what happens. And this is the idea that the king is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to defeat our enemies, he will be victorious, and then he will bring peace. When that happens, there's going to be this big parade. We're going to have this parade, and the Messiah will come riding on a donkey. 
Now, what's up with the donkey? The reason for the whole donkey thing, folks, is if you're riding a donkey, you're not going to fight anybody because you've already won. You see, in that day, if you went to war, you didn't go with a donkey. You went with what? A horse. Because a horse was going to win the battle. It's kind of like in our day, the difference between a tank, like if you're going into a battle, you want to bring this, you want to bring a tank because you're going to win the war, versus that. Anybody know what that is? It's called a Chevette. And you know what we know about Chevettes? Don't take them to war! My family only had one car in the 80s. It was a Chevette. I learned to ride or learned to drive a car in a Chevette. And you know what a Chevette is? It's only one step up from something else. The clown car. I mean, isn't that good? There's some guy that like freaks out about clowns in the first celebration. We had to take it down real quick. But anyways, hopefully none of you are that, so I'll just go like this. But, but it's just one step up from that. And uh, I mean, the reason why the Shabbat never lasted very long is because if you got hit in the rear end with the Shabbat, the whole car just blew up. The whole thing just blew up. That's why you don't see Chevettes around anymore. Folks, if you're going to a battle, you don't want to go in a Chevette. You might do a Hummer. It'd be more likely that you'd take a tank, but not a Chevette. And in the New Testament, six days before Jesus would die upon a cross, He comes to Jerusalem. It's Passover, their biggest holiday, and All of Israel is waiting for the Messiah who will free them from Rome who has had them enslaved. And they're like, just like our hero Moses who took us out of Egypt and got us away from Pharaoh, now hero Jesus is going to show up and He is going to be the one that will overcome Rome and Caesar. And on the way into Jerusalem, what happens is Uh, Jesus pulls aside a couple of His disciples and He tells them this. He says, Go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a, what's it say? A donkey tied there with her colt by her. So they brought the colt. They brought the donkey. They took off their coats. They put it on top of them. They put Jesus on top and He rides into Jerusalem and the crowd goes crazy and everyone's going wild. But this is so strange and nobody thinks about this until it's done. He's riding into town on a donkey but He hasn't won anything. Rome is still in charge. He hasn't fought yet. He hasn't gotten rid of the Roman rulers. He's going to war, folks, on a Chevette. That's what Jesus is doing. I mean, He must have been so confident because nobody would have gone into battle with, a, with no sword and riding on a donkey. You know what? If you do that, you're going to get killed. It's a good way to die. 
So people start asking these questions like, who is this guy? Who is he? What does he think? And folks, when Matthew says the acts fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, it's not like someone who predicts a football score. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I'm going to predict this football score and magically it validates everything. It magically will validate the Bible. You see, there's an awful lot of teaching about prophecy that goes on in our world today. And unfortunately, it's not been very helpful because it's not very accurate sometimes. I remember in 1999... There were all of these religious people that said, the world is coming to an end at 2000. And so Prince wrote a song, right? We're going to party like it's what? 1999. All right, all the rest of you who are younger, Google it, okay? But you need to know Prince. And 1999 came, and it went, and 2000 started, and Y2K, and the whole world's got... And what happened? Wasn't it? So Zachariah's not saying, hey, this is going to be some magical fulfillment of a prediction. What he's saying is this. Jesus understands it. Jesus alone gets exactly what's going to happen because he's bringing, he's ushering God's kingdom into the world and he's the only one who knows how to set all wrongs right. He's going to overcome all sin, but not through power and coercion, but through suffering as a wounded healer. Why do you think Jesus chose to suffer? Because he wanted to be able to connect with you in your suffering. You know, I know some of your stories. I know the suffering that you experienced. And some of you are going through all kinds of pain. And you're waiting and you're wondering, is the waiting worth it anymore? Maybe this whole God thing, maybe this Jesus thing is not it. And I'm telling you, he came to suffer because of his great love for you. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection when he, rode on the t- when he rode into town for the battle, his followers remembered all these strange things. And they go back to this guy named Isaiah. And he had said something, but 700 years ago, they thought it was for everybody. They thought it was talking about the suffering of the entire country of Israel. But they go back to it, and Jesus refers to this many times. And in Isaiah, it says this. Surely he took up our pain. 700 years before, he says this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Well, what does that sound like? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. 700 years before Jesus came, they thought that was about the country of Israel. They had no idea that God in flesh was going to come and experience all of that because of his great love for you. And the disciples finally figure this out. And they're starting to understand Jesus very differently in light of this passage. They're putting the pieces of the puzzle together and maybe, just maybe, it's not just somebody that I should just like walk behind, but maybe I should give my very life to Him because they're the Son of God, the Savior of the world. 
Here's another piece of the puzzle. God's power over nature. One of the things that we find in Scripture is that in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, it would talk about that only God has power over nature. And in Psalms, right in the middle of the Bible, there's a passage that talks about, being, about people being caught in a storm. And this is what it says, what God does. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Now, back to Jesus. In the book of Mark, 700, 800 years later, it says that one day the disciples are in a boat and they're with Jesus and a storm comes up and they're terrified. And so they cried out to Jesus and this is what happened. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the waves and said, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to His disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. I've never seen this before, but I'm going to give you some insight today to this passage that I've never seen before. And it's this. Do you think the disciples were more afraid before the storm or after the storm? You know what I used to always think? It was during the storm. But it's not before the storm. It's not during the storm. You know when it is? It's after the storm. Because look at what they say. They were terrified. Dude, he just calmed the sea. Everything's good. We can go back to fishing. Everything's fine. No, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He is a storm stopper. You know, there are thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people this Christmas Eve who are going through a storm. They're going through a battle. They're going through a hurt. Some of you are in this auditorium and some of you know co-workers and friends and neighbors and others who are experiencing this. And in your program, there's actually an invitation to our Christmas Eve uh, celebration. It looks like this. And it just says you're invited to Christmas Eve, 2.30, 4 o'clock, right here. And for some of you, you know a coworker, a neighbor, or a friend, or someone who's going through such a difficult storm right now. And this is the thing. Will you invite them to the storm stopper? The one who calms the storm. And so I just want to ask you, I'm not forcing you to do this, I'm just asking you to ask a question to God in your prayer time. God, who is it in my life that you're asking me to invite who's going through a storm right now to Christmas Eve. Because this is the thing. That invitation, you have one in your program, and you can get one when you leave if you want, it's not for you. You know why? Because we're expecting you to be here. We've already taken your pictures. No, I'm joking. We're not. But we want you to be here. And we do it early in the afternoon so that you can have your evening with your family. But invite some people who are going through storms. Here's another piece to the puzzle. The one who alone forgives sin. The one who alone forgives sin. You know, way back in the beginning of uh, Scripture in Exodus, uh, this guy named Moses goes up on a mountain one day. You might know the story a little bit that he actually kind of receives these Ten Commandments. But when he gets up there, he actually finds out 
that the God of the universe tells him that I forgive sin. No one else understood that in that world at that time. I mean, the greatest gift that Israel gave to the world, that Jewish people gave to the world, is sometimes called this. It's called ethical monotheism. Say that five times fast, okay? It's real easy, though. This is what it means. Ethical monotheism. There is only one God. There's only one God. There's only one Creator. See, at the time when Moses figures this out, all of the other religions in the world are pantheism people. They believe in multiple gods, tribes of gods, and all of a sudden there's only one God. And not only is He transcendent and He created everything, but He has a a morality that He can forgive your sin. And Moses actually writes this in Exodus. Uh, It'll come up on the screen. The God of Israel, the Lord, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Thank God for me, He's slow to anger. He's very forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, let's go to Jesus. One day, Jesus is hanging out with uh, some religious leaders. They're having a dinner together. It's all the, the bureaucratic religious people. And this lady somehow walks in. They don't know how. She gets in there, and she has a bad character. I mean, you know, really, really bad character. Everybody knows her reputation. And she comes in, and she's heard about this Jesus, and she immediately starts crying, and she gets on her knees, and her tears come down on on, uh, Jesus' feet, and she gets out her long hair, and she wipes off the tears. And you know, all the religious leaders are like, do you know where her hair was last night? Do you know what she was doing last night? And they're like, how in the world could he be a prophet if he's allowing this woman to do this? And they're all wrestling with like, who is this guy? I mean, they just can't get it. I mean, if Jesus is who He says He is, He would have shunned this woman and He would have known she was a sinner. Holy people don't miss or don't connect with people like that. And this is what Jesus says to the woman. Your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? All right, Jesus, you can do some miracles, all right? Uh, You know, we've seen that, but but forgive sins? There's only one person that forgives sins, and who is that? It's God. Finally, the last kind of piece of the puzzle, maybe the biggest piece. Jesus dies and is resurrected. All this comes to the importance of what Christmas is. Some of you might be like, Man, I was just hoping to sing a couple Christmas songs and go, Yay, baby Jesus! You know? (laughs) Folks, he didn't stay a baby Jesus, okay? Some of you are in Talladega Nights world. You need to come to, like, (laughs) Jesus world, you know? (laughs) I'm messed up. Anyway, all right. So on Friday, like, Jesus dies... And this is what we don't get, folks. I just want you to know, when Jesus dies, all their hope dies. They're hopeless. They're not happy. But then, three days later, 
he gets resurrected and everyone thinks when they read the Bible, you think, ah, yeah, they're so excited, but it's really not it. Some of us don't read the Bible very carefully. Sometimes I don't. But if you look in the book of Mark, his father or his followers' immediate response to Jesus being resurrected from the dead, it might actually surprise you folks. In the book of Mark, generally it's understood to be the very first gospel written. So it's the first one, and then Luke, John, and Matthew see that, and they're like, hey, I had some of those similar experiences. But Mark's the first one. And the women go from the tomb, and the Scripture tells us that there's a young man there, and he says, hey, Jesus isn't here. He's risen. He's alive. And what I'm about to read to you right now is the last verse in the Gospel of Mark. And this is what it says. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. That's it. That's the end? That's the end? Folks, what the book kind of tells us is that Mark doesn't end this with happily ever after Easter and, you know, the bunny and, you know, like all that kind of stuff. By the way, the bunny's not a part of the story, okay? And this is so strange. You've got to check this out in the Bible yourself. Like, open it up this week. Decades later, what happened was people read Mark's account and they said, man, that's not a happy ending. And so they put some additional material in there to make it a happier ending. But if you read and italicize, it actually says this. These verses are not in the oldest or the earliest manuscripts. So what's going on here? Well, when Jesus rose from the dead, no one, folks, knew what that meant. There were some people in Israel who thought that this was the resurrection, but anybody who expected a resurrection expected that what it came Two, is that everyone would be resurrected. They thought when the Messiah came, everyone would be resurrected and Rome would be defeated and the temple would be cleaned up and everything would be made right. No one was expecting a crucified Messiah. They had to figure it out. And we actually hear how they figured it out. After the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke, the third book of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, Two disciples are walking to this road called Emmaus and they're trying to figure everything out that they've heard about. And they know that the, the tomb has been empty because the women have told them that. But I'm telling you folks, they're not happy. They're not hope-filled. They are hopeless. They are despondent. And this is the conversation that takes place. Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that are happening there in these days? Translated, hello, McFly. <laughs> now, for some of you, are like, I don't get it. You got to Google, okay? Go to Google. Back to the future, a movie. And then it goes, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I mean, can you imagine being a part of that particular Bible study? (laughs) Jesus is like, 
Guys, do you get this? Here's what it means. The whole reason why I came as an infant was for this. And then he goes on. Then their eyes, after he told them why, what really it was about, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And he opened the Scriptures to us. Jesus opened the Scriptures to them. The Scriptures opened their eyes of what Jesus was and suddenly they see in front of them He is the death defeater. He's the one. Didn't our hearts warm warm, uh, so slowly and incredibly to see what God had done? By the end, they realize He's the one who left heaven and He came to earth born to a virgin to fulfill everything that was in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. Jesus rocked the world of the disciples on that day, and Jesus is still rocking the world of people today if they'll turn to Him. And more than anything else, He loves to see people's lives change. That's why in Jesus, God came to earth. He is the kingdom bringer. He is the Sin forgiver, he is the storm calmer, he is the son of God, he is the son of man, he is the wounded healer, he is the future king. Here's the one that we've all been waiting for. Every lonely widow, every greedy miser, every disappointed dreamer, every rejected teenager, every betrayed lover, every forgotten child. So this season, this is what we'll do. For some of us, we like some of the Christmas hymns. And we'll sing one like this. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And everybody will be happy. Oh, little town, I love the Bethlehem. I love the baby Jesus. It's all good. But what we don't often sing with as much gusto is this. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the promises, all the dreams all the excitement, all the heartbreak, all the pain, all the hurt, all the aches of the human race is pointing to something that's going to happen, to somebody who is going to come, and it's Jesus. And the reason that it matters, folks, is not for you to walk around your people, uh, around people that are atheists or people who don't believe in God and go, you're wrong, I'm right. It's not what it's about. Because Jesus even said some people might have the right religion and they become the wrong person. Folks, the reason this matters is because it's true. It's real. It's true. It's real. It can't be trusted. I just went through the puzzles of what it looks like. And Jesus said things like, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's true. It is better to give than to receive. It's true that whatever you've given to the least of these, you've given to Him. It's true that you don't have to worry about tomorrow because He holds tomorrow in His hands. You don't have to worry about death because He already defeated death. You don't have to worry about anything because the One who everyone had been waiting on finally came. And peace is coming and hope is coming. And folks, it's not about Hallmark cards that go, hope, you open it up. Hope! Hope! No, no, no. It's not that, folks. It's not about faith tradition. It's not about soft hopes. It's not about personal values. 
These things are true and they can be counted on. They can be lived by. It's something you can give your life for. We wait because there is somebody worth waiting for. And His name is Jesus Christ. And today, 17 people have made a commitment to say, I want to give my life to Him. He's my only hope. He's the only thing that is going to make my life right. And so they said, I'm going to give my life to them. And 17 people will be baptized here in just a few minutes. And we'll be able to celebrate that. And I'd love for you to hear all their stories because all their stories are powerful. But we don't have time for that. But I asked them to give one word of what their life was like before they came to Jesus, the one that we've talked about today and have seen as the Son of God. And then what their life was like after Christ. And I'd like you to look at their faces as we show this video of hope. Isn't that cool? That uh, you get to be a part of something of lives that are truly changed. And you know, I was uh, thinking uh, today that uh, maybe for some of you, you saw the pieces of the puzzle And the reality is there is a missing piece maybe in your life. And you uh, have never made that decision to say, Jesus, I've been missing you. I I need you in my life. But I see the proof of that today in the teaching. And today, God, is my day. I want to give my life to you. And so if that's you, if you're sitting there, maybe you've drifted away and it's time for you to recommit to say, I want him in my life. And I simply want to lead you in a a prayer. And uh, it's not a prayer that uh, is something that is something that you say and it doesn't mean anything. It's something that many people have said in this place and in the history of the jar. And their lives and their families have been changed because of what they gave their life for to the one who knows them best, to the one loves him most. And so today, if you're ready to say, I'm ready to give my life to him. I want to surrender to him. Jesus, I think you have a better plan for my life than I do. And today, I'm going to give it to you. I simply invite you to repeat this prayer after me. And it's not my prayer, but it's your prayer. But we never pray here alone at the jar. So I just invite us to bow our heads and to simply repeat this after me. God, thank you for sending Jesus over 2,000 years ago to save my life. Jesus, forgive me. Make me brand new. I believe you died and rose again so I could live with you. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, serve you, and follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.